prayer. And then again, I'll kind of do what we did yesterday, kind of set the scene as to what today's going to be about and where we're going and how we're going to conduct this study together. So let's bow in prayer and then we'll get into our study. Wonderful, amazing, gracious God, thank you so much for the night's rest you gave to us and for this new morning. You've allowed each of us to be alive and to have the strength and the health to be here. And all of that is by your goodness and your grace. Uh, as everything unfolds today, this Father, for this nation, help us to keep our mind focused on you and to remember what matters the most. And all the changing of the different offices, help us to always remember that you are on the throne and that never changes. We trust on you and we lean on you and depend on you. And we're so thankful that you are always here for us, every time and in every season. Bless our time of study today, gracious Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Uh, we are looking at different mountains. In fact, some of you have heard from many that you were trying to guess which mountains we're going to look at next. Good luck. <laughs> you know, it, it's fascinating. We did a study on this earlier this year, and you could have a whole series when you look at all the mountains and the, the moments on the mountains in Scripture. There's just a lot of pivotal things that happen on mountaintops. Uh, and so, if I don't get to, if we're not going to study your favorite mountain, uh, or one that you have in mind, just uh, whenever Sean gets in here, we'll assign Sean a couple sermons to come right. <laughs> But it's, it's a fascinating study, though, when you consider not just regionally what's going on, and how uh, we, we mentioned yesterday with mountains, there's a sense of, of captivity of our minds, captivation that comes when you see a mountain, you're drawn to it, your attention is, is focused on it. It's majestic. It's, it's, it's separated from everything else. And it's obvious that God put them in our creation to, to show that, to show the grandeur of His creative power, but also to provide places apart from all that is below. But there's important moments in the Bible story that took place on mountaintops. Yesterday we looked at Mount Ararat. <laughs> Just gotta say, gotta get the jaw going. Ararat. So today we are going to Mount Carmel. In your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Kings 16 to begin, and then we're going to be making our way to 1 Kings 18 shortly after. So Mount Carmel is actually quite a bit smaller than Mount Ararat. It only stands about 1,700 feet above sea level. So certainly it's a smaller mountain, much less impressive than Mount Ararat. But that doesn't mean that what took place here was any less important than what took place on Mount Ararat. Uh, let me give a little bit of context as to what's going on. And for those of you who weren't here yesterday, uh, I'll maybe set the scene and help move the story along. But you all are good students, and you all have amazing things to contribute. And so I would love today, just like yesterday, if you have something to, that comes to your mind, or you have a thought, or anything related to where we're going, just jump in and throw it down, and we're going to learn together uh, as we're working through this. 58 years have passed at this point uh, since the nation of Israel was divided in two. 58 years. Israel had a set of kings beginning, the northern nation of Israel, and there were seven kings in a row, and each one was worse than the one who preceded them. Uh, they were rebellious, they were murderous, they were idolatrous, but that seventh king kind of just broke the mold. He was the one who you just kind of remember. His name is Infamous. Anyone remember what his name is? Ahab. He's kind of know it, right? We don't name our kids Ahab for a reason. Right? <laughs> King Ahab. Someone tell me something about Ahab. What do we remember about King Ahab? He is a poor choice for a wife. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> our first point is... <laughs> 
because we don't not, we don't name our daughter Jezebel. There was a family in, uh, in Missouri, and they named their dog Jezebel, and it lived up to it. So okay. he married a wicked woman. We'll we'll come back to this in a moment. Let's get a little more about Ahab, and then we'll talk about Jezebel and what's going on behind the scenes. So what else do we remember about Ahab? Had a man killed so he could get his vineyard. Yeah. But I can't remember the guy's name. <laughs> Naboth was his name, and Naboth. he wanted it so bad, so envious and jealous. But again, when you have no regard for man or for, for God, you will have no regard for man. And so if I don't respect God and who he is, taking a man's life in order just to acquire his property is nothing. Right? When we lose respect for God and his laws, we lose respect for for our common man made in God's image. So that was certainly one thing notable in Ahab's life. What else remember about Ahab? He didn't like Elijah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't like the prophets of God at all, especially Elijah. He had a special place in the, in the bottom of his foot for Elijah. He didn't care for him at all. Let's look at 1 Kings 16. Let's get your back to the woman you married. 1 Kings 16 and verse 31. It says, It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. <coughs> All right. Tell me about Jezebel. What do we know about this woman? <laughs> she's bad. <laughs> yeah, she's bad. She's evil. Okay. Manipulative. <coughs> Manipulative. All right. She's, she rules the roost. Okay. Like, she is the head of that household. There's no question. When you read the story, Ahab is... Have you heard it before where man is the head, but woman is the neck that turns the head wherever it wants to go? She is the strong neck, and she is turning Ahab wherever he wants to go. Okay, what else do we know about Jezebel? She's a uh, worshiper of... Uh, Baal. There's no place in her heart for God. In fact, have you noticed before, from verse 31, the name of her father, Eth Baal? Baal. His very name is attributed to Baal. And so she comes from a lineage and a family background that is entrenched in Baal worship. So he marries this woman who is wicked and evil and vile and manipulative and controlling. That's part of what's going on with King Ahab. And then the other thing is Ahab chooses to walk in the path of his wife and to completely remove any, any essence or place of God among the people of Israel. And so we read 31, let's pick up in 32. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Those are not good words he once said about you. And so it was his aim and intention, I'm going to completely remove God off the face of the earth. And the ways he did it was he set up altars for Baal. Do you remember they had a, two cows set up in uh, Dan and Bethel? And the temple for Baal set up in Samaria. Uh, the priests that came from the Levites are now removed, and the priests of Baal are in charge of the religious order in Israel. It's almost like he's doing everything he can to make sure people forget there ever was a God, Joel for God, and we're going to put Baal in his place. So that's what's going on. All these hundreds of years have passed, 58 years. King Ahab is leading Israel, and all this, it just kind of seems like God is being forgotten. Another place is this evil and wicked worship to Baal, where even sometimes they would work, or they would sacrifice their own children. And it's right in the midst of this time that a man come, comes in, his old westerns, right? He blows it out of nowhere, and he shows up and he shakes the whole town. 
because here comes Elijah. What do we know about Elijah? Two men to leave without dying. Okay, one of the two men who left without dying in a fantastic way, the fiery chariot, incredible exit out off this earth. He was an iconic prophet. Yes. He's kind of like the prophet's prophet, right? When you want to represent the prophet and you want to look to someone who seems to identify, it's, it's Elijah. Elijah seems to represent. He's a very iconic man, iconic prophet of the Lord. Do we know where he's from? Kishba. Okay. Do we know anything about his family, about his upbringing, about what he did before this moment? Nope. Nope. All of a sudden, this guy shows up, and we're thinking, who's he? Right? Where's he from? He's not from a major town. It's not Jerusalem. He's coming from Paducah, Kentucky. He shows up. And it's not just that he shows up. He shows up, and he goes straight to Ahab. He goes straight to the king and says, look, the Lord has told me and has used me, and if I pray, the heavens are going to shut, and so I'm praying and the heavens are going to shut, and you're not going to have any rain. And all of Israel and Ahab are thinking, who's this? Where's he from? And then it shuts, and there's no rain. Do you remember how long there's no rain in Israel? I mean, we thought that three months in the summer was bad in Dallas without rain. Can you imagine three years without any rain? Can you imagine what, what Israel would look like with no rain for three years? T tell me what, what, what they would be facing. What happens if you have no rain, aside from the fact you don't have grass? I mean, I, I got that. What, what else happens if you don't have rain? No vegetation, no crops. Terrible dust storms. Dust storms everywhere, right? Livestock issues. Livestock will be dying, right? Water is somewhat becoming scarce. Water is becoming scarce. It is going to become a filthy, right? Water cleanses and removes. It's going to become a filthy, desolate wasteland in three years. Three years is a long time. So Elijah prays, and it changes. And then he comes back and he prays again. And it begins to rain. So we have some history with Ahab. For our story, we could go through all this, and it can get a long story. we got to get to our main story. So we're going to chapter 18. Elijah comes back after being on the run for a season, after obviously praying and shutting up the heavens and causing immense frustration in King Ahab. But he comes back, and in verse 17, verse 18, it says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He, Elijah, said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Woo! Don't you love that nickname you came up for Elijah in verse 17? <laughs> you trouble over Israel. Now, there's a difference between 17 and 18. Ahab had an accusation. But what's different between Ahab's accusation and Elijah's accusation? 17 and 18, what's the difference? One's the truth and one's a lie. <laughs> one's the truth and one's a lie. One has substance. And the other was an empty balloon. You ever have someone like that? Well, they would like to cast an accusation or say something, but there's no evidence to support it. Right? And so Ahab's saying, here, you trouble of Israel. And here's Elijah. Again, who is this? It's not me, it's you. That's the king. He doesn't care. You're the one who has troubled Israel. It's your fault things are the way that they are. And in verse 19, he says, Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 400 prophets, uh, 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of the Asher who eat at Jezebel's table. All right. 
He offers a challenge to Ahab. Gather the prophets, gather Israel, and meet me here. Meet me at the mountain, at Mount Carmel. Before we get into the challenge and what's going on here, right? <clears throat> Elijah offers this to him. Why did Ahab even listen? That's what I was wondering. Well, it's a great question, right? Because he's the king and he doesn't have, I don't have to listen to you. Why would he listen to him? Yeah. Kings have ego. They just got challenged. <laughs> All right. The pride in the man. If someone throws out in the gauntlet, okay, either man up or or fess that you're too cowardly to, to own up to it. So there's a lot of ego in Ahab. Why else do you think Ahab would have accepted this challenge? God's decision. God, maybe, there's obviously a lot of God prompting. The Proverbs talks about how God can move the king's hearts like channels of water. So absolutely, you see a working of God. Yeah. He thought he was right. Okay. Yeah. This is a challenge to the God he believes that exists. And so to deny the challenge is to make it clear that you obviously don't believe that your God is real, the right, the one true God. Yeah, he had called Elijah the troubler of Israel, going to her point. So he wants to prove him wrong. That's right. I'm, I'm going to... To not accept this is to admit defeat. So I'm going to own up to this. I'm going to take it. So what happens, and if you look at it in your context, down in verses um, 23 and 24, a challenge is offered from Elijah to Ahab. Walk me through. What is the challenge? What's going to take place on Mount Carmel? <coughs> What's going to happen to the sacrifices? we got some sacrifices. Uh, Elijah thought, I challenges them to light the fire under their sacrifices. There we go. You say that Baal is the one true God, and you made it very evident through the way that you've removed everyone from the land, so <coughs> let's just put it to the test. Your God versus my God. This is not Elijah versus Ahab. This is Jehovah God versus Baal. Mm -hmm. You get all your prophets, mm -hmm. I'll represent God, and let's just make it clear. But there's something underneath here that I think is really important. Yesterday we looked at Hebrews 11, as that sort of a historical marker for what took place on Mount Ararat. I think if we had one from Mount Carmel, it would be right here in our context, verses 20 and 21. Here's what it says. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Okay. It's not just Elijah and Ahab, or even Elijah and the prophets of Baal. What really is the point of this contest? Show who, <coughs> true, who the true God is. To show who the true God is for the people. Right? This is really about the people. If it's Ahab, I mean, God could, could do a lot of amazing things just for Ahab. Or really, why bother with the man so hardened? This is about winning the people back to God. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I think right off the page that comes right here out of this verse is, is you see, you can't please God living on the fence. Now that phrase here, how long will you go? Some versions will say hesitating between two different opinions, but I like that language here from the ESV, limping between two different opinions, limping between the two. What was not an option for Israel? When you look at this, what was not an option? Follow after false gods. Well, obviously, that's what he's trying to win them out of, is you don't, don't serve Baal. But he gives them a choice here. What is not a choice? You can't do both. Okay, you can't, you can't have both. You can't have God and Baal. Why not? 
You guys are jealous of God, but they conflict each other. They're opposite, okay? But don't we get the impression here that they were trying? So why? Why were they trying to please both? What what would cause them to, to have both, to try and please both? Well, the fear of them, the fear of what might happen if they didn't, from Ahab's point of view, and how wicked he was, and there how you go. treacherous he was. So, that was I, one concern. Yes, at least on one side, it's a fear. If we don't give any kind of acknowledgement to the Baal, we might lose our life. Right. One other thing that one of the jobs of the kings was to know what was in the law. Mm -hmm. That was part of their job, and it's evident that that wasn't going on here. Oh. Deuteronomy, before they even had a king, God says the king will have his own copy of the law and will know that law. You don't get the impression that Ahab ever read it. Right? right? There's no evidence of God in his life. Right? So that's, that's far departed. In fact, if you go back over those 58 years, that law has been forgotten a long time ago. So by the time you get to Ahab, it's no surprise then that there's a man who has no uh, respect for God, let alone his law. Well, why, why else do you think that they would try and ride the fence? Kind of hedge in their beds, you know. <laughs> maybe, and maybe so we'll give a little to each one of them. I'm gonna hedge my beds, see <clears throat> see which side seems to play out better, and I'm gonna stay. I'm gonna stay on the winning side, the one that blesses me more. Yes, ma'am. It's the same thing people do today. Mm -hmm. They believe in God, yeah, but they're they're worldly, you know. Yeah, they believe in God, but that God's not going to hurt me if I love this person just because I'm not married to them and I live with them. All right. Well, you took me, you went it, you went Sorry. a step ahead. Let's go there. Let's go right there. All right. So how, how do we see this today, right? If, if we see that the people of Israel long ago, that they're riding this fence between doing something they know they shouldn't do, but I've not completely let go of God, right? You, you, you get this here. It's not that they completely abandoned God. They're just trying to please both. And Elijah says you can't. You have to make a choice. How do we see this today? What, what is any evidence of what this would look like today? We're living it. What's that? We're living it. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it's, 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 society. I don't mean us, but, you know, society. Yeah, yeah. we're... You see fruits of it all around yeah. us. What are some ways we see it? Yeah. Uh, I think there's a fine line between, um, like, how James talks about, like, us striving and, like, going through trials and us, like, working towards, like, being closer to God. Yeah. And then on the flip side, it's, like, saying... Okay, I go to church, I do X, Y, and Z, and acting like the hypocrites do, and then not actually like living that out in our lives. There you and, go. And it, those type of things. It's a definition of a hypocrite where, in one sense, I'm going to claim to follow God or love God, but then my actions are not going to own up to it. So maybe that's one, one good demonstration of someone who's trying to ride the fence. And pointing about James, James says in James 4, verse 4, um, he uses the language of adulteress, right, a broken relationship. That you do not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. And so therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You, you can't have both. You cannot have both. So maybe a way it would look like is, I want, to, I want to have God and Jesus and eternal life. I want heaven. I want those things. But I also want to be able to have all the fun and the lifestyle of the world. And so I want to be able to watch what I want to watch and drink what I want to drink and, and engage in all the things I want to engage in. I want to have I want to have all of the world, but I want to have all of heaven too. Can you have both? No. No. No, no right? I mean, we'll have passages like 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see the contrast. You cannot have both. You cannot have God or the world or in the world. 
Um, in fact, if you look at this one, if one chooses the world, what have they lost? The love of the Father. The love of the Father. Right? But if you look at the opposite, if someone today admits and has a lifestyle that, that supports a love of God, what do they lose? The world, right? They lose the world. That's what Jesus said in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before I hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In other words, if you choose to love God, the world will hate you. So you really cannot have both. You have to either choose the world or to choose God. But and that's, that's something that they teach our children in school, is to be inclusive. Don't be inclusive. Accept everybody on what they're doing and don't be judgmental yeah. if they're choosing an alternative lifestyle. Be open-minded, right? Yeah, you just, you just, they're like everybody else. They just chose to live a little different than you are. And you treat them as, as equal, just the same. Sure. Just be kind to them. And That's right. Make them your friend. The, the exclusive path, whether it's a belief, or even in Christianity to say that there's one way to the Father, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's not accepted by a lot of people. We like the concept, all roads lead home. That's, I don't know if you've been to Dallas before, but they have a, when you go to the major airport, the DFW airport, there's got to be like a hundred lanes. I know it's not, but it seems like lanes for <coughs> And all these gates to get in, and you have to pay to get into the airport. And every, they have all these signs. One says credit card only, and toll tag only, and cash only. And I'll tell you, the first time I showed up there, I thought, I'm just going to drive. I'm not going to fly. I don't even know how to get in here. They have all these <laughs> gates. But the thing is, it doesn't really matter what gate you go through, because at the end, it all funnels and takes you to the same place. And I think that's how some people will see life, is you do you, and you believe what you're going to believe, and you practice what you want to practice. At the end of the day, it all leads home. But that's hard to find harmony with Jesus saying, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. Which is a way of saying, I am the only way, and the only truth, and the only life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's one way. Yeah, I'm just thinking of what Joshua said when he said, you know, uh, choose this day who you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I think it, the bottom line, it comes down to all of us, that the world do what they want. Mm -hmm. But as for me and my house, that's this right. is what we're going to do. That's right. Come with us or without us, but that's what we're going to do. That's right. You, you may choose your path, we've said ours, and we're going with the Lord. Yeah, we'll go here. Yes. When um, you talk, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, yeah. Yes, um, I worked for a, a Jewish family for 20 years. Yes, ma'am. And every time I say I'm going to do service or I'm going to do this, and I'll, I'll invite one of them, and she'll say, I'll go if you have food. And I said, yeah, we do have food. And she says, well, what is it? And I said, it's the Bible. Oh. <laughs> Bread and life. No, thank you. Uh, <laughs> sometimes those, those ways we try and be accommodated to invite, like, a, you know, if you have a fellowship meal, we certainly do. It's the unleavened bread, the fruit of the vine. No, that's not what I was thinking of, right? That, something that's not really that, that's, that's a neat way of, of, of inviting someone and helping them to see the truth. I like that. Oh, sir. I'm just going to say, when... If you've ever talked to a Christian or a family member who's in the process of falling away, mm -hmm. there's this process in the middle where they're rationalizing what they're doing is okay. Yes. And it's not really, the Bible didn't really say that. That's right. And 
from my experience, you come back two years later, they're never back in the Bible if they if they haven't turned away. And this between two opinions is a transition state to going to totally away from God. Yes, it in is. In almost every case, unless you can turn them back and go, hold it. No, it's God's Word. Forget what you think. It's God's Word. Mm -hmm. That is a great point. Because what you see is, what you see in, in this kind of a language is someone who's not fully committed to God, and there's something that they're rationalizing. How much can I have of this and still have God? And whenever that is in our mind, we are on a fast track away from the Lord. I think it was mentioned before uh, in one of the comments, God has said, especially throughout the early books um, in the Old Testament, that He's jealous. Uh, for you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, um, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. What does that mean to say that God is jealous? Usually we, we look at that as not a good thing, that people don't need to be jealous. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? He wants all of us. Yeah. Our whole being. He wants our whole being. Yes. Absolutely. He wants nothing else before Him. Okay. No one coming before him. Nothing else is going to be me. All of me or none of me. Sir. He is absolutely and wholly responsible for us even being here. That's right. Why would he want us to trust in anything else? It's really for our own good. Well, to your point, in saying that, right? Since he created us and made us the way that we are, right? And, and we have our blessings, he has a right to be jealous, mm -hmm. right? When you look at who he is and what he has done. Maybe a companion passage to this, if you look at Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. That's who I am. I'm not going to share first place in your life. I'm not going to share the throne of your heart. One's going to sit there into their mirror, it's not me. I think sometimes we, we, we get rubbed the wrong way with the idea of jealousy, but it makes complete sense if you've been married. Right? Can you imagine your spouse holding someone else's hand? Ah, it's all good. Right? Oh, you kidding me? No, I don't want her looking at another man. Right? Go to a movie. I don't want you looking at George Clooney. Right here. That's the jealousy we're talking about, right? I, I am completely and and enamoredly jealous with my wife's affection. That it belongs to me, just as mine belongs to her. For her to give that to any other person, I would be immensely jealous and heartbroken for that. I like what one preacher said in a wedding ceremony. He said, do not allow your eyes to wander, your minds to ponder, or your hearts to settle upon anyone or anything that will draw you away from each other. That's what we're talking about here. I am fully and completely committed to you. And that's what God is saying. You can't sit on the fence. It's either me or it's not. So one thing you see from Mount Carmel is this call to get off. This, this get off the fence. Don't try and, and, and have two options. Don't try and be indecisive. I want you to be all in with God. What you also see here... Oh, can, nope, I can, forgot. Can I had one make more one thing. quick point? Though? Yeah, please, brother. You know, it's interesting that he did ask the question, but they did not answer him. So what does that indicate? That they were thinking about it, that he was asking them? Or they were afraid to add, you know, answer the question. You know, I, I just think that's a very interesting point that they did not even answer one way or the other. That's a good observation. Yeah. So maybe they're afraid, or you know, I'm on the fence about you and I being on the fence. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> let you think on that a little longer. Yeah. Well, let's talk for a moment. I'm, I'm curious about this. What What would you say are some of the things today that really compete with our full and complete allegiance to God? I'm a good person. <laughs> Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm a good person, right? I do good things. That's right. 
That's right. So maybe justifying some things I do because I am a good person. Define good. Yeah, define good. Oh, it's good. Oh, it's good. And good people do bad things. Yes. Right. Cornelius was a good person who needed Jesus. So, yeah. Uh, career. Career can. Money, wanting to serve, get all the, you know, what have you, that whole financial. Absolutely. Idea. Money, careers, material goods, brother. All the denominations I want to say, you're okay as a Christian. Hey, any path forward. That's right. Sometimes we allow a message. Someone has told us. They say it's true. And we believe it. And that can lead us in the wrong direction. All the garbage on the internet. <sighs> Today would be a good day. This is just an opinion. Okay? Take it as it is. Today would be a good day to get off of Facebook. Or the news. If you still watch the news, I haven't watched the news in a long time. But if you watch the news, today would just be a great day to take a fast and spend some time in the Word of God and pray. Because guess what? The world's going to go on without us watching it. It's going to happen. And we're just going to keep focus on what goes on. Yes, brother. Um, that's why we don't buy lottery tickets. Hey! <laughs> the temptation is there when you hear billions of dollars and then you think about heaven. Hey, do I right. want heaven or do I want a billion? Doesn't even doesn't doesn't compare, even does it? Compare. Doesn't compare at all. Yes, Family and friends. Yes, relationships. relationships. And it's not that relationships are a bad thing. In fact, let me put a few on the board because that was one I had in mind. Few that I have in mind that really compete with our allegiance to God. What is our focus? The things that we think about. Uh, where does my mind go when it doesn't have to go somewhere? Right? When I don't have to think about something and focus on something, where does my mind naturally drift? Is it on myself? My goods? Is it on some kind of a uh, of self-interest? Or does it go to the Lord? As, as Paul would say, to set your mind on things above. Notice how he began that though. If you have been raised up with Christ, right? If God has taken us out of our death to sin and raised us to a new life, if you are a child of God, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. Do you hear that language? Since He raised you out of death and made you someone new, you as this new person are going to keep thinking about Him and seeking those things above. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop by being raised. It's a life pursuit. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things here below. And so, where are my thoughts going? Um, even, even in times where it ought to be thought about God. I love the story of a, a husband and wife, and they were on the way home after worship service on a Sunday. And she said, honey, did you see uh, what Myrtle was wearing today? No. He said, well, did you see Judy's hat? I said, no. Surely you saw John's tie and how he clashed with his shirt. I didn't see that. She says, well, what were you doing at worship today? <laughs> where's, where's my focus, right? Where's my focus? Sometimes we get really distracted on things that don't matter the most. So where's my focus? Uh, income is a huge one. And I know this makes us uncomfortable. And, and in one sense, it should. If you've ever traveled to another country, we come back with a proper perspective. Ooh, true. We are very rich. Yeah. We just are. Even the poorest among us are kings compared to many in the world. And so we are a wealthy people. And Jesus talked again and again about wealth. Uh, he made it clear in the mountain message that of all the things that compete with our allegiance to God, he says you cannot serve God and wealth because we tend to. We tend to. Uh, Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If I want to know what's important to me, just follow the bills and see where the money goes. At least I thought about how I'm spending that wealth. Uh, relationships, as I pointed a minute ago. The God-given relationships are a blessing, 
But when the words of mom and dad or the thoughts and opinions of the kids or the grandkids come above God and I'm changing what I believe in order to maintain relationships in my life, I've got an improper balance, right? Jesus said, if you want to come after me, I have to come before them. Uh, he used the language of hate. If anyone does, uh, comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And that seems so severe, hate. Hating our loved ones, well, what he's describing is your love for me cannot compare to the way that you love and see anyone else. I have to be above and before. So what it would seem as if you hate others compared to the depth of your love for me. Security, right? Uh, especially in terms of our safety on earth. And not necessarily security in terms of you know, security gates and locks on the doors. Just feeling a sense of, of comfort and care. Jesus talked a lot about that with worry in, in Matthew 6. About worrying about our food and worrying about our clothing and worrying about what we have. And, and he said, seek first the kingdom. Don't worry about the food. Don't worry about your clothing. Don't worry about your houses. Don't, don't be so worried about trying to make sure every detail is lined up in life. Seek first the kingdom. The kingdom of God and righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God knows what you need. And so don't allow your desire for security keep you from focusing on your God. Time is a big one, right? Where's our time go? How do we schedule out our weeks, our days? Where, where does our time unnecessarily just fly? You just kind of see it. There's some things that come first. And God is supposed to be from 1 Kings chapter 18. The call from Mount Carmel is, get off the fence and put me the first in your life. The other thing I would say from here is to call to follow the one true God. If the Lord is God, follow Him. That's what Elijah is saying. If, if He really is God, then you follow Him with all that you have. Now, when you look at the test in 1 Kings 18, and you look at what was described down in verse 23 and 24, and even some of the first verses starting in 25, in what ways were the odds stacked in the favor of Ahab and Baal? 850 to 1. Alright, we got more prophets. Which means there's a lot more people praying to that God. Right? There's going to be more voices. Perhaps the odds are greater of this God hearing you and responding. So they got more prophets. What else? How is the odds stacked in their favor? Well, physical things, just like the wood and all that kind of stuff. Okay, Elijah's are really wet. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if you've ever been camping, and you try and light some wet wood, it doesn't happen. And so it's not just that these are wet, they're completely soaked. Right? So much so that water is collected around the altar, which is his way of saying there's not going to be any tricks, any deceit. Right? i got a little match in my, in my pocket here. <laughs> If this is going to be ignited, it will only be by the providence and the power of a God. Right? That's what he's doing. How else do they outstack his favor? They get to go first. He's going first, right? If Elijah went first, well, that's not fair. Right? I mean, you had all the time. They get to go first, and they have all the time they need. Right? If they, if they do it, then the people are going to go, ooh, it doesn't matter what Elijah does. That's exactly right. That's right. Our guys already answered. They're going first. And one thing, I, I want to go back to the numbers, because sure. I think that really applies to us today. Yeah. One thing they had in their favor was they had a consensus. Yes, they did. Yes, and, they did. And that, that affects so many people today. That's right. Uh, they have government authority on their side. They have government authority. The king and the queen are represented here, because if you notice from verse 19, there are some who ate at her table, right? They had the queen's endorsement and the king's support. Baal was known as the sun god. Do you think it would be much of a sun god to light a small altar on fire? <laughs> it's not like this is a wind god or the water god. <laughs> what is a small fire to the sun? 
So you have a God who's known for lighting things on fire, providing heat. They have all day long. They're going first. There's a lot more of them than Elijah. 850 to 1. And so it begins. Walk me through. They begin and they begin to pray. What, what takes place? <laughs> I can imagine this. Like, there's some things you just kind of smile. You laugh at. That's the humor of the way you have to imagine what Elijah is going through. Right? Because he knows what's going to happen here. Everyone knows this isn't a false god. Right? At least Elijah knew. that they, they weren't so convinced. And so they start praying. And there's nothing. And it's not just that Elijah's sitting back saying, Oh, just watch he gets into some madness, right? Because he starts saying, hey, maybe your God is deep in thoughts, right? And starts poking at him. But in between this, though, think about what he's saying through this. He's jabbing at him, but think about it. When he says, maybe your God's deep in thought, that means he's not thinking about you right now, right? And then he goes, well, maybe he's busy, right? Maybe he's got a lot on his schedule, which means he's a subject to limitations. If he's got too much on his schedule, he can't do all things at all times. Maybe he's traveling. He's gone on vacation. I love that one. He's, he's gone somewhere and you, you missed him. You're, you're reaching his voicemail. That simply means then that he cannot be everywhere at all times, which means he can't always be where you are when you need him. And then maybe he's sleepy. <laughs> Scream louder, he's saying. Wake him up. He's taking a nap. But if that really is the case, then he's just like the men who are calling upon him. Do you see what Elijah's revealing to us here? Contrasting with the real God. First of all, he's definitely contrasting with the real God. But appreciate this. When we create an idol, a God in our own image, there's no commands. There's no expectations. Nothing beyond what I myself have in mind. Right? He will never demand of us anything more than what I want. It is my God of my invention. But when I really need him, when it really counts, he will never be there to save me. Do you see it? That God expects nothing of me, but He will not deliver me from anything. So some... what use is He? What's that? What use is He then? What? That's the question, isn't it, right? Because is there any amount of jobs, or wealth, or relationships, or pride, that in the moment, there's no commandments there, there's no expectations, there's no Sunday morning worship, there's no lifestyle change, but as Isaiah would say, Consult together, argue your case, get together and decide what to say. Who made these things known so long ago? What idol ever told you that they, uh, that they would happen? Was it not I, the Lord? For there is none, uh, no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. There is no Savior but me. No idol came up with this plan. No God of our invention came up with a plan to say, but there is one Savior and it is God. That to me, when I kind of go back to this, that's what this is showing. When we create gods in our own images, life seems really easy because there's no expectations. But it's actually miserable because when we need that God the most, and you and I need God every day. We need His help, we need His grace and His favor. He is never there for us. I saw a comment. Did you? Yeah. I had a question. Are the, the, the prophets of Baal, are those from Israel or are those from her where she came from. I mean, I don't know if we know, but like, 
They, they have set up their own prophets in Israel. Okay. That's a place in chapter 16. They do an exchange where now, instead of the Levites being the prophets of God, they have their own prophets of Baal in Israel. They set up altars in Samaria, Baal. Um, are they? Are they um, but are they Israelites, or are they they're people of Israel, or are they from other nations? Right. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know if it matters, but I was just curious. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Certainly, you you would imagine some of this would be the influence of her people, uh, right? From chapter 16 and verse yeah. uh, 30, 31, where she came from, from uh, um, the Sidonians, yeah. Baal, the king of the Sidonians. Mm -hmm. But also, you see at this time, even some of the Lord's people uh, were, were changing, changing their allegiance. That's part of what this is about, is calling them out of their ways. And so, yes, yes and yes, yeah. I would imagine, yeah. yes and yes to this. So then it's Elijah's turn. I want you, in the context, I want you to notice, starting down at verse 30, and walk me through what he does, right? He gives them all the time they want to, and they are taking all day long, and they're crying, and they're screaming, they're even cutting themselves, and he has fun poking at them, and then finally it's his turn. Starting in verse 30, just look at those few verses. What does he do? Repairs the altar. He calls them near, right? I want you to be able to see everything that I am doing. Observe closely everything I'm doing. Well, I heard another one. Repaired the altar. And notice, what, what does he use for this altar? Twelve stones. Twelve stones, right? There's something very symbolic about this. What Ahab has broken down with God's people, I'm going to rebuild. We were a nation, twelve tribes, we were one. And I'm going to rebuild that here again. So he rebuilds the altar, what else? Got a trench. Now we got a trench, right? Again. He's creating the situation to where it has to prove there is a God. It's not that this there could be, or that was a neat trick. There's no way this could happen unless God, unless God had intervened. And so he has it doused in water. And then the last thing you see here is that he says a prayer. What does he say in the prayer? Down in verse 37. What does he reiterate? Ask God to answer him. Answer me, very simply. answer me so that they will know you. He's reiterating it again. This is what it's about. Lord, it's not about me. It's not about me proving I'm right. Show to your people and win them back again. And then it happened. I mean, you just, you just can't imagine. There's some of these things you just can't imagine. Right? We, we, we don't have a... A Mark Carmel uh, replica here in uh, Ohio or in Kentucky, like we had the ark. The ark you can see it and try to imagine, but here to imagine fire falling from the sky and consuming this altar, and the response of the people when they saw it is, "The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God." Right there in the spot, God answered, and the people had their answer. Right, because isn't that it? My prayer is they will see and turn and belong to you. And their response in 39 made it clear. We've made our decision. We're coming off the fence. You are God and we are with you. Some people have said, I'm curious what you, what you would say to this. There are some people who would say, you know, I'm on the fence. I, I know I'm not as committed as I should be. If I had this though, if I had a Mount Carmel event, I think I'd get off the fence and I'd be all in. What would you say if someone said that to you? We got it. <laughs> I know what we got. That we got it here. We got it in the Word of God. We wouldn't know about it if we didn't have the text. What else would you say? I try to give them some 
I would try to give some evidences. That seemed to help some of my doubts um, to go back and see, not that I've even been over there, but other people have that I trust and know, to see the evidences that this actually did all happen in history. Mm. Um, yeah. My promise still stands today, yeah. and so there's certainly evidence of, of, it, of it existing. Reminds me of the rich man and, and Lazarus and Hades, and Abraham answered him. That's right. You have all the problems. That's right. You're going to get a sign. That's it's right. It's there. It is here. They have what they need. They have what they need. Well, I've had a, a person say, I've got to see it to believe it. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, um, do you believe that Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Were you there? No. Nope. Do you know that he, did you see him ride it? That's right. No. But you believe it. That's right. Why don't you believe this? That's good. It didn't last for him. It didn't last. It didn't last. It didn't last long. Right? He kills the prophets and then he runs. And the nation in a short time goes back. And all these men who were so quick to say the Lord, he is God, he is God, seem to vanish or hide. You had to come to agree. I'm just going to say, if we all look back, we've seen God operate like this in our lives. Maybe not with visible fire, but we've seen things change that there's no explanation for. It's exactly right. Or, you know, I think for us, though, one of the things that we need to say, oh, go ahead, you first. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, is that we have something a lot greater than Mount um, Carmel. Um, Paul calls that resurrection, that death, burial, resurrection, the first importance, the primary, again, if, if Mount Carmel is the primary place of God in our life, the resurrection and the empty grave is that primary importance in the life of us. We have something far greater, a far greater miracle than the Mount Carmel with Jesus and his resurrection. You had a comment. What, was that? what were we going to get? I was just saying, that's what faith is. It's We saw the nuts, but we believe, we believe right? We believe. Without evidence, without seeing, we believe. That's right. Absolutely. So, yeah, we got a few more. Can we come here and here? I was just going to say, you have to know where the person is at. Personally, you got to find that out first. That's right. And then work from there. Are we honest seekers, or is it someone just chasing miracles, chasing signs, without any real intent to believe? Sir. And the resurrection, this is saying, I believe, is the evidence, the, the best evidence we have that we can show somebody. If they just look at the resurrection and all the, the scriptures on the resurrection, the evidence is, I think, clear. Without a doubt. The tomb, the tomb is empty. Yeah. We know that to be true. Strong. Yeah, I think that's an important point John makes. God doesn't want us to have blind faith. That's called a fool. That's right. We're not fools. That's right. These people were not supposed to have blind faith. Nope. I mean, why did God even do this? That's right. To give them evidence. That's right. We have evidence. It's this right here. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, I, so I'm not going to walk around just believing something because I want it to be true. That's right. Or because my family taught it to me. Taught it to me. I want to know it's true. Otherwise, I can go do what I want with my life. I won't be here right now. That's exactly I want to live my life my way. This is not true. But I see the evidence, and that leads me to want to be a Christian. <clears throat> Absolutely. So, affecting your Bibles, go to Acts 17. That reminds me of something in Acts 17 when Paul's in Thessalonica. There is a. That's such an important point that it's not just what you believe, but why you believe it. There's a reason we believe all that we believe, there's a reason we practice all that we practice. In the old days, in the old preaching, we'd say it's book, chapter, verse. We had it. We had a book, chapter, verse. But even beyond there, the, the evidence that God has left all around us, that Romans 1.20, that God created the world in such a way that there's just no question of who He is and His divine nature, those invisible things which are seen. You know, I, I like this with, with Acts 17 about the evidence that's given. Um, 
Even then, what can be given today? It says in verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Do you notice what verse 3 does not say? He did not say, I am the Apostle Paul. I was chosen by Jesus. You just got to take my word for it. I saw him on the road. I mean, I am Paul. All right? No. He didn't lean on his credentials. He provided the evidence. I want you to believe, and so I'm going to show you why it is you must believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what we're doing. So we don't want a blind faith, where I'm just believing without really knowing why. And some people do that. A lot of people are talked out of what they believe because they were never talked into it in the first place. And that's what we've got to do. Ground ourselves in house to why. Why we believe these things. And God gave that to His people. All right, we're going to end here. We're almost... This is going to go real fast. You guys are so good for staying with me, but I can't keep you all all Tuesday. Well, I wish wish we could. Paul says that uh, because of who Jesus is, His role in creation and His place in the church, that He is to have first place in everything. That's what Mark Carmel is calling us to. Put God where He belongs in our life first. He comes before all. What that looks like for you and I, give God the first minutes of every day. Why do you think that's important? To give God the first minutes of every single day. What difference would that make? Well, the focus. The, the, whole day, the focus. So we'll have the focus on Him throughout our day to be able to get through it as He would have us. You're starting focused on right? You're, you're starting focused on God. What's Makes the whole day go better. Kind of changes the whole day, doesn't it? Does. It does. Yeah. Like from a like even my generation's perspective, that's like we have our phones and everybody does, but if you get on social media or any anything else, you're looking at the news, it, it really does hurt your perspective over the long run, even if it's just a few seconds. It's it's just those little things that add up over time and I mean, I've gone in and out of this yeah. in my in just my short life right. where it's like either picking up a phone first or picking up, you know, the word of God. Well, the word of God is in your phone. Though. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't understand. Not all those are more right. For for some of us who may not wake up very well in the morning, uh, I held a gospel meeting a couple years ago in Alabama, and I stayed with an elderly couple. And every morning we would gather in the kitchen, and they started to sing, "This is the day the Lord has made." You know that song? This mm-hmm. is the day. I didn't know that. Uh, they sang it in a round. I didn't know they wanted me to sing too. <laughs> this is the day. This is the day. And it came to me. I, I haven't had my cup of coffee yet. <laughs> I'll tell you, by Friday, I love that. I love that. Because whatever that day wants to become, at least right there, this is the day the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. But we're better people when we start every day just thinking about God with God. How about this one? Giving God the first day of every week. Why? Why We know we can worship God every day. We know we ought to. But what, what makes Sunday so important? What makes our Sunday gathering and worship so important? Start out remembering why. Jesus, the day the Lord was raised. The day the Lord was raised. We remember what now, brother? The, the why. Jesus why? We remember why. Why is it so important? What, what else makes it important? It reminds us of God's rest, His relationship with us that's called for back all the way through the Sabbath law. And there was a time when Sunday really was a day of just worship and rest. Sometimes we tend to get a little more busy than we should. not that old. How do you remember that? <laughs> you keep referring to the old days. Dude, we know what the old days are. <laughs> the history books are great, man. <laughs> 
wanted to commentary says, it's not been that long ago mm. that there was a time mm. that Sundays were a lot slower mm. and businesses were not open mm. and there was no games on Sundays, sporting yeah. events on Sundays. Yeah. Uh, that, that's my lifetime, yeah. right? And certainly before that was even more so. There was a reverence to a day of Sunday and you and I know that's just not the way it is today. But it can be for the people of God. For us, right? It doesn't matter what they do, we've made up our mind. And this is going to be the first day. How about this one? Given the first part of our prosperity. Ooh, that's where it hurts. Given the first of our money. Right? But there's a passage out of the law. Right? This is from the Living Bible, but I like the translation. It says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. Right? So as I have received, as Jesus through Paul says, it's better to give than to receive. As I have been given from God, before I go off and I spend and I parcel it all out, at least I'm giving some thought and prayerful consideration, God, you gave this to me. Let me honor you with what you've given me. Let me find ways to give back and to be generous and certainly giving to your cause. That's what it's all about, brethren. That Mount Carmel event was all about calling people back to God again. Don't live on the fence. Don't try and please two masters. Give your life wholly and completely to God. Final thoughts, comments, what, what do you have as we're wrapping our call to a conclusion? Priorities. Priority. That's what we're talking about. That's exactly right. I'm just thinking, you know, we've talked before, but if you're trying to ride the fence, you're not happy on either side. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's right. You're really not. No. No. People at church are way too uh, strict for me. The world's way too far gone. I'm just not happy anywhere. No. Can you imagine trying to fight for two armies? Can't do it. Be married to two different people. Solomon married to 2,000 people or 1,000 people. I mean, you, do, you, can't, you can't do it. You have to only the real path for joy and satisfaction. It's complete commitment. Priorities. Sir? Uh, we've rightly made uh, a good point uh, today that uh, we uh, can't do it ourselves. We have to rely on God. And it, I, I don't know, I don't remember where it is. I think it might be Isaiah. But it says it's not in the man that walketh to guide his own. Footsteps. Jeremiah 10.23. What is it? Jeremiah 10.23. There's a prophet in Israel. Look at that. We're read. Jeremiah 10.23. That's it. We have to rely and lean on the Lord. Let's have a prayer. And I'll let you go on your way. Gracious one true God, we are so thankful to you for this powerful message of what took place on Mount Carmel. We are so thankful for the way that you displayed yourself to your people. You showed them in such clear and profound ways that you are the one, the Lord who answers prayer, the Lord who provides all that it is we need to know you and to follow you and to serve you. Gracious Father, in the moments that we are tempted, call us off of our fences, pull us away from the times that we are divided in our priorities and our interests, and help us every day to put you first. First in our hearts, in our minds, in our priorities, in our lives. Especially this day, help us to see you as first. Help us to recognize your sovereign rule. Help us to see your place. Help us to recognize you as our king. And help us to trust that your will and your plan will always, will always come to fruition. 
We're thankful for our time together in the Word. Thank you for every person who was here today, gracious Father, and our time of sharing and learning together. Bless us as we go throughout this day. Keep us safe in your care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.